get by Benning. Darnell Nurse left it in the corner, gets up center. Perry, scoops. I I'm so upset right now. I can't off the top of my head. I can't think of Rocky Top. I was just gonna start trying to like sing <laughs> Rocky Top. I, I left um, a little a little delay just in case. Just I appreciated that you, you tried to help me out there, but I couldn't. I failed you. I'm sorry. That's all right. Hey, but you know what? We're back, and it's this. This would officially be the first episode of the season, right? Like I, I guess we can count the season preview as the first one, but this is the first in-season episode. We're two games into the regular season now. Our uh, two and O predictions got absolutely hammered yesterday by the Islanders. Yeah. That didn't that didn't go the way we were hoping <laughs> did, it would. That did not go well at all. Um, but hey, I mean, there the the first game was fun. The game against Seattle was a good game. Uh, it was trending in the same direction as is what ultimately the game against the Islanders went to. But uh, T- Troy Terry and Trevor Zegers and Mason McTosh made it a fun game. And despite the heavy scoreline um, against and against the Islanders, it was. There were some bright spots and you know things to look forward to this weekend, but now uh, the Ducks head out on this, uh, continuing this road trip. So four games on the road again, uh, to, and I guess it's a five-game road trip, I believe. And then they're back home uh, for the following week, but they play the Rangers, New Jersey, Boston, and Detroit for this road trip. So it'll be uh, an early season-defining road trip for the Ducks. But hey, man, it's going to be fun. It's going to be fun. The, 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 it was kind of what we expected with the Ducks to open the year, where... Um, the good guys, the guys we oh man, I feel bad saying that the the good guys, the guys we expected to be fun and to produce right off the bat have done so. Now it's about finding where that depth scoring is going to come from. Uh, yeah, Eddie, it's uh, it's good guys versus bad guys, and yeah. we all know who the bad guys are, and they should burn in hell. Obviously, <laughs> no, I I think you're right. I think what we saw in both games was. You know, kind of what you what you expect, right? Like we saw them give up twenty one shots in like six and a half minutes, and somehow manage to win a game five four in overtime. Five four four three. Five four. Five four. Okay. Um, in overtime, and then we saw them get absolutely shelled and lose twenty five to one. And in both cases, I think you could say they didn't play defense. They just scored enough goals to overcome it. And, like, I mean, you know, we're we're right where we thought we would be this year and where we kind of ended up being last year, which is, like, the defense isn't spectacular. And as well as Gibby played in game one, I think you can look at game two and be like, oh, yeah, there's, like, a limit to – how many times you can ask your goalie to win you a game. I feel like we know that by now. I mean, yeah, we, for we sure. see that every year with Gibby. I like I I feel like this is the result of what we expected all gas no breaks to be where mm-hmm. there are some games where you know you're getting outplayed, getting outshot heavily, the goaltenders will keep you in it and then you're able to squeak out a 5-4 overtime win in a high-scoring game. 
Or there's games like against the Islanders where the goaltending doesn't go your way and the defense still isn't as great as it was in, in game one either. And you get blown out 7-1 to one at the end of the night. Or maybe it's like the Minnesota-LA game where that finished 7-6. Maybe, maybe we're not even there yet. We're not even in all gas, no breaks territory. No, yeah, I mean, this is all gas, no breaks, right? Like, the, the the thing with all gas, no breaks is sometimes that the other team puts the brakes on you. And that's what we saw in the Islanders game, right? And I think it's interesting. Um, you know, Seattle is still a team that's kind of trying to get it together, kind of figure out where they're at. Um, and as far as the Islanders is what you're seeing is a team with by and large, uh, you know, a, a considerable amount of continuity on the roster. And although there is a a change behind the bench, it feels like structurally, um, you know, they, they're going to play things pretty similar to how they did under Trots. And, you know, I, I mean, it makes sense, right? Because you look at a team and even if they put up, you know, what was it? I think it was seven goals you look at the team and you're like, they don't have the most offensive talent. So playing yeah. a structured game that kind of, you know, if you want to go into football or soccer about it, you, you know, you could look at it as kind of playing a structured counterattacking game, right? Where you're just going to try to make the most of the rushes that you can get and try to minimize the quality of the opportunities against. And yeah, you know, the Islanders aren't a team that are going to score seven goals on a nightly basis. They didn't even look like that in the game against the Ducks. It's just like you said, they took advantage of the opportunities that they did have. And they're, you know, again, it wasn't, when you look at the underlying numbers, it, it, the Ducks shouldn't have lost 7-1, to one, or it didn't look like they, they would have lost 7-1. to one, But pretty much every quality chance the Islanders got, they put in the back of the net. Yeah, exactly, right? It's, 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 it's capitalizing on your opportunities. That's really... You know, that's the thing you need them to do. And, like, is that you? Yeah. No, not cats this time. Somebody just. I was going to say, do you have a motorcycle? Yeah. Somebody's going nuts out there. If it's not cats, it's uh, whatever's going on outside my window. Yeah. Um, Let me see. Uh, Okay. So, yeah, back to whatever the hell we were just talking about. like in the first game against Seattle, right? Anaheim was able to kind of capitalize on a couple of moments and, and get something. Um, you know, I think Trevor Zegers had a power play goal that ended up tying it yeah. at four, four, yeah. you know, that's the, that's exactly, that's exactly what you want right there. That's, that's what you're looking for is, you know, your difference makers to be difference makers. And the unfortunate reality of where Anaheim is at right now is, they don't have a ton of difference makers and the team isn't in a position to get the most out of them anyways. Right. Like, I, I mean, we can kind of just jump into the, the Shattenkirk thing. Cause this was something I was kind of talking about with Shattenkirk the other night is like, uh, Connor from later rivals made the comment on Twitter that like, we got to get him out of here. And I'm, you know, I've been very vocal about uh, Shattenkirk's limitations. Uh, and you know what he does or doesn't bring to the team, but I think when you look at him, he is especially at this point in his career, he's a depth luxury, and he's a guy who you get the most out of when he's on your third pair, and he's able to 
play within a system and in front of a team with structure and, you know, just like real sound fundamentals. And he's able to capitalize on that, right? They've got this supporting talent, but they've also got the infrastructure. And, you know, Fitz, who's in the chat right now, he's a Tampa guy. And the thing that, you know, I would point to him and he's kind of saying right here is, the the trick to Shattenkirk is the two places he's been best have had remarkable infrastructures. He's been great in uh, St. Louis when that was kind of the prime of his career. And then in the second window of his career, he was able to uh, get down to Tampa Bay and, and just be really good and really effective for them as that, you know, depth offensive player. I think he played a little bit higher up in like the pairing but still like you look at that team and you're like he's not a top three defenseman like they've got yeah. guys throughout that lineup they spread it and, yeah and just anaheim just doesn't have that you know what i mean anaheim isn't in a position to get the most out of him so he they're kind of unfortunately putting him in a position to fail because what he provides isn't really of all that value to anaheim right now mm-hmm and what he doesn't provide is what Anaheim needs, which is like kind of sound defensive structure in front of Gibby. Yeah, it's he's in the right spot for where he should be in a lineup as a third-pairing mm-hmm. defenseman. The problem is the Ducks don't have the system in place for him to succeed as that in this lineup. You know, right. like they've got a lot of guys that can be primary or secondary puck-moving offense defensemen. They've got Cam Fowler. They've got uh, now John Klingberg. They've got Jamie Drysdale, right? So... Kevin Shattenkirk doesn't really even necessarily get to do that. He's a third option now. He's behind Klingberg. He's behind Drysdale as being that guy. So he, he doesn't even really get to, to fit in where it would normally work for him. And then there is no defensive structure in here for him to be able to go out and do that anyway when he is on the ice. He's stuck defending the majority of the time that he's out there. So it doesn't work. And I get it. I, I mean... When they brought him in, they hoped he'd have a little bit left in the tank to be that secondary offense guy, but the the team kind of tailed off right when he was brought in where he didn't really get the chance to be in a Ducks team that was good enough to be able to get the best out of him when he was there. And now obviously things are with age for him trending downwards and he's just not in the right spot. So I think, I mean, this is probably the last year for Shattenkirk in, in, in a Ducks uniform. Um, whether Klingberg stays or goes no matter what. This is the, the last year of his contract, I believe, right? So I would imagine at, at, the end of the, uh, at the end of the season or it's at the deadline or something, there's kind of an amicable departure for both of them. He goes off to a better situation for himself, and the Ducks move on and get some assets in return for him. But, you know, I, listen, it is what it is at, at this point. The, the Ducks don't have many better options to put in there other than Kevin Shattenkirk right now. Uh, the ones that they do have that could fit what they need – are maybe not ready yet. You know, Drew Hellison would probably be the ideal candidate for, you know, a shutdown physical right-hand defenseman to slot in on that bottom pairing. But is he ready for the pro game yet? He's only played a handful of games in the American Hockey League, dating back to a few at the end of last season and then the, the couple he's played at the beginning of this year. So him, Axel Anderson, you know, you've got Benoit and Beaulieu. There aren't many options right now to replace him that would do a much better job than he's doing yeah i mean i think um and i'm sure we'll get to this you know maybe you can talk yourself into being like it would be a benoit mahura third pair and that kind of you know mahura at least has a little bit more offense 
to his game and, and a little bit more of the skill dynamic that maybe playing him on his offside you're less concerned about. But obviously with Mahura gone, that there's nobody there. And so, you know, I, I don't think it would be the worst idea to put out a Benoit, um, Baloo, Benoit, um, you know, uh, I want to say Vakaninen, but that's not the name I'm looking Kulikov? for. Right now. But Kulikov, thank you. Uh, well, no, because he's he's up. You know, I just think if you want to take Shattenkirk out, I don't think the worst thing in the world would be going a double defensive left-handed third pair. So I yeah, think there are Benoit and Bolu, and then Colton yeah, White or, is the other one. I think you were thinking of, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Colton White. You know, I don't think either of those is necessarily a huge issue. I think, um, you know, there's something there that it it would be. It, can't get it much worse. Fun. It can't yeah. get worse, right? And you lose the offensive dynamic, but you add a little bit more beef in front of the net kind of stuff, which really is, is what you need from a third pair right now where Anaheim is at. You just need guys that you can put out there, and they're not going to get completely run out. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, hopefully Shattenkirk is able to find his, his footing. You know, I think we saw kind of at the beginning of last year that he did pop a little bit early on, and he was able to find some success on the second power play unit and even at 5-on-5 five five because – he had been slid down uh, from being up on the the first pair with Fowler the year before. So, yeah, you know, there's a, he's still a useful player. The problem is, is just he he's just a player that doesn't fit in Anaheim right now, and it just looks worse for everybody involved because the fit is so poor. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean. If the Ducks can get anything, I think they will. I think he'll be a player that because of oh they'll get a his, second for him at yeah, least. Yeah, they'll, they'll get for something sure. for him, um, and he'll get to go to a, a team where he fits what they're looking to do right now, and where I think his skill set is utilized properly. And again, this isn't a a negative towards Dallas Aikens or the Ducks coaching staff. It's just like he just doesn't fit what they need right now, unfortunately. And whether you get a second or a third, as, as Gio and you kind of put, at this point, you know, anything is, is kind of found money for the Ducks to go out and get some assets for these guys. Um, the only the real question mark is, I mean, Klingberg is the first piece you decide on, I think, right? Because of what you could potentially get for this guy. Do, does, is, that, I, does that I, weigh I mean, into the decision, though, of... of can you Ooh. can you move on from Klingberg and Shattenkirk and then? Yes, you, you absolutely can. I, I I I'm sorry. I'm being. I don't mean to be rude, but like, I I don't think Shattenkirk has any bearing on Klingberg, right? Because the question with Klingberg is: Is this team going to be in a position to extend him before the deadline? You know, like, are we going to see these players taking a big step forward? Yeah. And if they are, then you have to move Shattenkirk because at that point you're like, okay, we need to try to get something because the guy that we thought we were going to use to get some assets is actually going to stick around, which is great for us because that means we're ahead of schedule, whatever. But even if you're not there and you're like, we have to move on from Klingberg, Shattenkirk's best suited by moving. You know what I mean? Again, like we've just been sitting here talking about like with Shattenkirk, the thing with him is it's, He's not in a position to be successful. So I think, I think, you know, as far as the situation with Shattenkirk is, is the moment, like, because here, let's be very clear. Shattenkirk hasn't been great. He hasn't quite been able to provide the dynamic Anaheim was hoping he would. But he has been very professional. He seems like a genuinely good guy. Yeah. And he's a legitimate veteran. He has earned the right to be put in a position to succeed. 
So I think when you find a situation that makes sense for Anaheim and makes sense for him, whether it's November or, you know, 11.59 on the trade deadline, you make the move. Whether Klingberg is staying, whether he's going, I don't know that that's really all that relevant because you'll probably be able to go out and get defensemen to fill in. Like, even if you don't get a defenseman back in a Shattenkirk trade, you'll be able to go out and be like, uh, you need a roster spot. Here's a six-round pick. Give us this, you know, bottom pair guy or whatever. So I, I, I don't think that is an issue. I think with Shattenkirk, it's the moment you find a good situation and a reasonable return, you make the move. Yep. No, I'm I'm 100% on board with that. And I, I think bringing in, like, you move both of them, you do end up likely going out and acquiring somebody. Uh, you know, again, it doesn't have to be anybody that's going to be a suitable replacement, just somebody to that's an NHL player that can fill the roster spot. Just in the sense that the Ducks don't have anybody right now, maybe that changes come the trade deadline or whenever that the, the move theoretically happens. They don't have anybody right now that they can comfortably slot in there without kind of harming their development with a lot of the younger guys that they have down there. They've moved on from a lot of the veteran defensemen they had down in San Diego. So there really isn't a logical option to come up. So, I mean, you can run Nathan Beaulieu, Simon Benoit, Colton White, and move on from uh, Klingberg and Shattenkirk, but it leaves you kind of slim in, in the depth part. So I do think they would, they would have to go out and acquire somebody if you're going to trade both of them out just to have... A, a, enough depth in that position to finish off the last 20 or 25 games of the regular season. But you don't think there's something to you have Hellison, you have Kulikov, like you have like, unless, because look, I'm not against moving out basically everybody, right? Like moving Kulikov, moving Shattenkirk, moving Klingberg. Um, I have no problem with that. And at that point, you know, then you have to start being like, okay, is you Levy a guy we're comfortable bringing up is uh, bowl you a guy that we are comfortable playing 15 minutes a night or whatever it ends up being. Like, I think, um, I think, yeah, like if you move everybody out, like you said, then I think it's something you have to be aware of. But at the same time, I think Anaheim between Jamie Dreesdale and just the forward depth, you just need to find guys who can play defense. You, I don't know that you need to bring in a stylistic replacement, right? No, like you, yeah. don't need you just to need bring an NHL player. Guys. You just need bodies. Yeah. And as Fitz said, uh, you know, you can pick those guys up on the wire. As we've talked about, you can call guys up. Um, I, I think there will be ample opportunities to fill out six spots. Yep. So you know, I think. Um, moving on from those guys is is independent of that and you know and hopefully by the time we get to march we're looking around like oh hellison needs to come up because he's done well in in san diego i like how we're two games in (laughs) we're talking about shipping guys out the door at the deadline that's uh, if that bodes how the bodes well on how the next few uh podcasts are going to go over the over the months leading up to the deadline but you know what like like as silly as it may seem, like I do think it's—I don't know—maybe it's just because it's us or whatever, and like I'm biased, but like I do think that's the appropriate way to approach what we're seeing right now, which is: are these guys that we expect to move on if Anaheim isn't ahead of schedule, 
And if they are ahead of schedule, what does that mean? And, you know, I think it's all perfectly legit conversations. And if you ask me right now, it seems like Anaheim's right around where you expected them to be and not ahead of schedule. And so these are guys you're going to be looking to move on from, to which case now you ask, are they being put in a position to succeed? Are they being put in a position to show what they have to offer a contending team? And if the answer is no, well, it's obviously only two games in, so we know we have a lot of things, but it's also something just to kind of watch for. So I, you know, I guess I want to ask you this to kind of transition. What has been your impression of the new guys? Any of them? What has been your impression of them so far? Yeah, I, I mean, I, th- I think we've gotten to see what you would you would hope done on a in in the best scenario you would get from Strom in Vitrano, specifically in Game One, right, where you saw Vitrano and why he was brought in with that goal, with the shot on that goal as well, like. That's why they brought this guy in because he can shoot the puck like that and he becomes an instant weapon for this team. And I think you saw what Strom brings at five on five, playing with a guy like Troy Terry and McTavish, and then also playing on the top power play as well. He had a great game, put up three points in that game. And you saw, again, bits of it as well through a very lackluster game in game two for the Ducks. But I like what I've seen from them. I think Kulikov brings a steady presence, and I really like what that allows Jamie Drysdale to do because. I thought over the first two games, he's looked excellent. I really like that reduced role that he's gotten this year where he's able to kind of slot in behind John Klingberg and not have as much responsibility and kind of go about his game um, and kind of get eased into the season. So I I like how Kulikov has fit uh, with him. And then I guess the only other addition then would be um, Pavel Regenda. And we saw him start the season on that fourth line with Jones and Grant that started or that did so well in the tail end of preseason. And then he got bumped up to play with Zegris and Vitrano in game two. And I mean, listen, all, all you can expect from him is he's going to work hard out there. He's going to big body. He's going to play, you know, a, a physical and a heavy four check game. And I, I thought he's done it well. Um, and I, my expectations for him, despite obviously the small little hype we had at the end of preseason, were limited of what he's actually going to do. But he's shown enough that he deserves to stick around. And I think that's all you can hope for him. So from the high-end acquisitions in Stroman, Vitrano, and Klingberg, we've gotten so far what you would expect these guys to give to this lineup. And then from the fringe guys and Kulikov and Regenda and uh, and you know, Bolu to some extent, I think he's probably been the worst of the bunch. You've gotten what you would expect from them as well uh, on on a a, kind of a lesser scale. How has Strom looked to you? Like, how do you feel about him as a half, I guess as a one B, right? Because that's kind of how they're using him right now is like a one B. Because he's out there a fair amount right now. And and it's great to see. I have no problem with that. I'm just saying like he's out there, I think a little bit more um, than you would maybe guess if you said going into the season, Zegers is the number one, and this is the year he is treated as the number one. Yeah, um, I, I think you can see why Strom wanted to come here. You know, the, mm-hmm. the heavy usage that he's getting in, in that opportunity to be a first-line center on this team, or at least share that responsibility with Trevor Zegers. You can see why he would want to come here and get that situation. I mean, this is a guy at one point who was a fifth overall draft pick and was, was highly sought of to be an elite talent in this league. And, you know, he's had a great career and a great couple seasons with the Rangers, but I, I thought he's looked great. You know, I, there were some tough moments in the game uh, against the Islanders, but there were for everybody. But he came out as one of six players, I think, in that game with a 
uh, a positive above 50% expected goals for percentage. So he had a good game offensively. And then obviously we know the production was there in game one. So, you know, I think this is a guy from what we've seen so far in a limited sample size, if he can continue playing in the top six with guys like Troy Terry or Mason McTavish or Henrik or Petrano, I think he's a guy, you know, and obviously getting top power play time as well. He's a guy who can potentially eclipse the 50 to be in that middle between 50 to 60 point range this season, which is based off his track record is what you'd expect. Yeah, for sure. I think um, he's, he's looked good to me. Like I feel like he's really done kind of the little things you expect where he's making clever passes, he's making smart plays. There's nothing about his game, you know, kind of like he said himself, you know, over the summer to Eric Stevens, like there's nothing about his game that's particularly flashy or or uh, eye-popping, right? He just makes smart plays. He makes simple plays, and they're the right play. And, um, you know, he he's looked good. I think having him out there with – McTavish has made sense and you know to be honest as much as it kind of I was up and down on it uh him with Troy Terry has looked great he seems more than happy to uh try to set Troy Terry up as much as he can for Troy Terry to just get to shooting uh so it's nice I think for me that was one of the things that kind of in the Islanders game I saw a couple of plays from Terry um where I was like oh he's he's decided he's a sniper like you know yeah. because i think his all his game has always been a little bit more of a, a 50 50 playmaking shooting even if you wanted to argue early on a little bit more towards playmaking but I, I think if some of the playmaking responsibilities are taken away from him because anaheim has good playmakers um and he's able to just lean in and shoot like it he looks comfortable doing it it looks like it's it's a great opportunity uh, for him to really push for it, like I think you te- you texted me last night or uh, during the Islanders game, like oh, so thirties uh, on the table, huh? Uh, yeah. yeah, yeah, it looks like it is. It looks like it really is. You just look at the goals that he that he's scoring. Um, he he's one of those goal scorers where it's not the shot in a sense, right? It's not he's not overpowering anybody with just a. a it doesn't look like it looks like for Vetrano coming off his stick. Yeah, it, he's just got it's such an exceptional release point on his shot where. It's quick and deceptive when you look at that that goal against the Islanders where you know, he pulls into the middle of the ice, drags it in a little bit, and just fires it. Accurate, top corner. You, know, you look at the overtime goal, the patience on the backhand to just kind of scoop it up. He's, he's just very cerebral player with his goal scoring. Mm-hmm. And, uh, I mean, he's come into this season and done exactly what you would hope he would, which is score three goals in the first two games and – put up you know a similar pace to what you'd expect in last year because one of the biggest questions we had going in specifically with the Ducks offense is can Terry and Zegras do this again right and Trevor Zegras is great through the first two games a little quieter in, in game two but everybody was quiet really except Troy Terry in that game who's is really the only one getting on the score sheet it was an unassisted goal for Troy Terry so um that that's gonna happen there are gonna be games like that but there were moments for Zegras but man Troy Terry is yeah, you 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 want to go with the, the meme. Troy Terry is very good. Like he he's yeah, just yeah. he's he's an exceptional, and he's done. He's come out with everything that made him such a great player last year, like attacking triangles, quick kind of turns into the, the middle of the ice to get good shooting angles, being a good playmaker, just smart plays from him. Pretty much every time he has the puck on his stick, and and it's worked out for him. And 
I don't see him slowing down at any point because he's going to be put in this opportunity. He's either going to be playing with Ryan Strom or Trevor Zegers. Mm-hmm. I don't see him. Why would you play him with anybody else? So he's the going only, to be playing with the, two elite playmaking centers. Right. I think, I think you can argue there is one other player you could reasonably play him with as his center. And that's not going to happen for probably 40 games minimum. And that's McTavish. Yeah. Yep. Um, and if you do that, they're not playing with a Vetrano, right? Because McTavish has a nose for net. Yeah. Troy Terry has shown, you know, that, that he's got that goal scoring acumen. And so what you're doing there is you're putting them with someone who can kind of accentuate that. And, and uh, you know, maybe that's that's kind of a Henrique there or something like that. Uh, but but I think the thing, you know, with Terry for me is, is he's very decisive. There doesn't seem to be a lot of indecision. There doesn't seem to be a lot of overweighting. He seems to kind of make his mind up pretty quick. And the moment that he feels that he has the opportunity, he gets that shot off. And I, I think between being an accurate shot and being a decisive shooter, um, I, I think that gives him... You know, a really, really nice dynamic where, you know, like, again, like, if you watch that goal he scored in overtime, it's not, it's nothing crazy, right? He doesn't dangle or whatever the shit. He's not doing anything crazy with the puck. He just gets the puck, goes from his forehand to his backhand. He waits it out, and he puts it up and over the goal. And it's just, that's what it is. It's just simple. Mm -hmm. It's just so simple and straightforward. And that, to me, is, I think, kind of the part of it where you can be optimistic going forward about the, his ability to continue to produce at a 30, maybe even 30-plus goal uh, clip is, you know, it's similar to, like, how we, how you talk about with um, guys who go to the front of the net, right? It's simple, repeatable practices, yep. and, and that's the key. Yeah, and he's come out of the gate doing exactly the same thing that made him successful last year, and he's been successful at it through the first two games. Um, and we look at, you know, always questions about his, shoot, his abnormally high shooting percentage. Can he keep this up? Well, he's got, what, seven shots, three goals on seven shots through the first two games. The way he Regret plays, God. it's just the way he plays that when you watch him, that might be sustainable. Because he mm-hmm. picks and chooses his opportunities. He's not a high-volume shooter. He doesn't just throw the puck on that. When he takes a shot, he and, and it sounds dumb to say this because everybody takes a shot expecting to score, but it's a high-percentage play for him. He takes the shot when it's the right moment for him to take that shot. Otherwise, he's peeling around. He's looking for the pass. Like he, he's like you said, he's very decisive in, in times his shooting at the right moment. I think even to what you were saying, though, I... I... And I'm not even trying to be silly. Like, I, I don't think everybody shoots expecting to score. I think there are lots of times, and, and justifiably so, where shooting is just a decisive action. Excuse me, I'm so sorry. Where shooting is a definite action that you can take. Getting a shot on net. So, you know what I mean? Like, so you're just like, I'm going to get this on if I get lucky. Maybe it hits a stick, maybe it hits a body. Maybe the goalie leaves a bad rebound, but like it's not necessarily to score. It's just sending this puck in a positive direction. And I think to your point with Terry, that's not really 
a thing that he does. I think you would say probably between 10 and maybe 15% of the shots that he takes is he looking to create an opportunity as opposed to scoring the goal. Mm-hmm. And so, like you're saying, you know, that that seems repeatable. Is is his his decision-making process is about optimizing chances, not just making, you know, rational plays, right? Because I, I don't think you're ever going to get upset for somebody for getting it on net, right? Even if, you know, Frank Petrano's ripping them from half tank, like, yeah, it's still like, look, I mean, it's better that than sending it the other direction. So, you know, so I, I think with Terry, when he's shooting, it is with the intention of scoring in a way that I, I do think is fair to say not everybody is. Yep. And I mean, listen, there, there's something to be said about the there was line changes between game one and game two. The only line that stayed together was McTavish, Stroman, Terry. And, and I think when you look at their production in game one, they they led the Ducks to that victory. Um McTavish looked exceptional in that game. I think you had to give him a lot of credit for the way he played. Two very, very instinctive, quick decision, creative passes for him to set up Trey Terry uh, and then set up Ryan Strom, I believe it was, on the on the second goal, right? So he's been full value for that top left-wing spot. And, you know, there was questions on whether he was going to start on the wing or start at center, and ultimately I think we both kind of decided that with the way the Ducks are built right now, if you want to get him into the top six, he's going to have to play on the wing, and mm-hmm. you can make that decision down the road. Uh, this looks like a guy that is not going to go back down to junior hockey. Like We, we expected that that was probably going to be the case. Um, there was no point I watched him over the first two games where I thought, yeah, he's not ready. And he just looks like he's been here for the last five years. It's it's unbelievable to to watch where he's come from. Um, the rise he's had since being drafted third overall to now in his first full season playing top-line wing with Ryan Strom and Troy Terry and not looking out of place. I mean, look, you could have you could have very easily kept him up last season. And even if he didn't look this good, he was looking competent and confident enough that it wouldn't have been a silly decision. I don't think anybody would have been like, what the fuck are you doing? Yeah. Um, and what we're seeing now is the benefit of him having been gone down and just having a year where he's one of the five best players, like junior players in the world. You know what I mean? Like, he really, like, has... He had a year where he just completely dominated international under-20 hockey. It, and that's just awesome. And, like, yeah, I think it makes a lot of sense for him on the wing. I don't think it's an issue. I think, it, you know, given the way that he plays, it, it makes perfect sense to put him with a, a playmaker like Ryan Strom and, and a more – I always feel bad when I say this because I don't, I don't mean it pejoratively, but it has become pejorative, but a more perimeter player in Troy Terry. Um, and so I think um, – you know he's in he's in a great position right now to succeed, and he's he's being given opportunities to make the most of it, and I and I think that's great because, you know, this is something I keep coming back to. Pat Verbeek said over the summer, even really before the draft, I want these guys to dominate at every level before they come up. McTavish did that. He fucking dominated, and he has earned the right to now step into a meaningful NHL role, and so. He has, you know, kind of taken that, 
taking that by taking it by the reins and, and is really going for it and pushing for it and he's engaged he's active there's no part of it where where you're you're concerned about anything other than just i don't know like exhaustion uh, of his first full pro year yeah you know what i mean like he's clearly ready physically he clearly has a high skill level he clearly is in the right frame of mind right now where he's going to be able to just kind of keep attacking. Like, There's just lots to be optimistic about with where he's at right now. Yeah, uh, and with him looking so great, like it's it's tough to say you'd want to split that lineup because they've been together for two games. They've looked good in two games. But at the tail end of game two, we saw a bit of a switch, which, listen – when you're losing 6-1, 7-1 at that point, you're going to see some lines juggle. But there were some positive signs where Troy Terry and Trevor Zegras were paired together for the first time since last year where they were unstoppable together. And, of course, when they were on the ice, I think it was just under five minutes, had an expected goals for percentage of 85.75. And this, and Troy Terry scored a goal at that point after a dominant shift by, by the two of them where they just worked over the Islanders' uh, D pair that was on the ice at that point. Like, I don't know if that, I mean, there's going to be changes 100%. There's never not changes after you lose seven to one. I would expect a, a fair amount of changes heading into uh, a game against one of the best teams in the league in New York Rangers tomorrow night in MSG. So that, that already is going to be a difficult place to play. Um, could we see Zegris and Terry? And then the real question marker then is, is where does Mason McTavish go? Because, Strom's going to slot down probably and play with Henrik. I don't see Adam Henrik jumping up to that line with Zegris and Terry. The question becomes, does Zegris's winger that's been with him for the first two games in Vitrano pop up with that line and stay with him? Or is it McTavish? Because I think you get kind of the same thing. You're getting the shooter, the pure shooter in Vitrano and McTavish. You're getting the guy who kind of finds the open space and, and makes his, his mark that way. I'd be really interested to see who gets paired with those two if they, if they go together for um, for game one here, or not for game one, for, for this game against the Rangers. Who would you put with them, Eddie? Who, per- who do you think is the appropriate third forward on a Terry Zegers pair? Personally, I would I would go Mason. I think when you, you talk about Troy Terry now being a bit more of a perimeter player, who kind of picks and chooses his moments to attack space and get a shot off. Trevor Zegris seems to be right now the player who just constantly attacks space and attacks the opposition. Mason McTavish is a guy who has excelled and so far excelled even in the, at the pro level in the 11 games he's played at finding gaps and finding mm-hmm. open space and being in the right position. And I think when you have a perimeter player like Troy Terry who's scanning the ice and you've got a guy who attacks space and, and pulls defenders in like Trevor Zegras, that allows a guy like Mason McTavish to have all kinds of pockets of space to slide into. And you've got two of the best playmaker, the two best playmakers on this team on a line with him to find him in that situation. I still think Frank Vitrano would do a very good job. He gets in a good position. He's got the shot to pull it off and, and put the puck in the back of the net. But I, I, I just think McTavish's ability to to find those gaps uh, would be exceptional with, with Terry and, and, and Segrist. But you're overloading that point 100%. You're overloading that top line by putting them all three of them together. Yeah, I mean, I, I wonder if 
if putting Regenda up on that line and having it be McTavish, Strom, Vetrano mm-hmm. uh, makes the most sense. Uh, you know, because you have a guy like Regenda who's one, he's going to do all the kind of dirty work down low. He he's got a he's got good size. He's active, or you know, below the goal line around the net and things like that. But also, like he's going to defer to Trevor and Troy in so much as like he understands that he's riding shotgun on their line, and so his job is to not get in their way and to make their lives easier. And I think, especially for a young player that's so hungry and is in in uh when you look at a young player who who's been kind of seized this opportunity uh to really go for it uh i think for me that's that's a huge plus and that there's a lot there's a lot to to say for kind of rewarding him with the opportunity to play with you know the two torchbearers for this team right now uh, and then, you know, I think that also allows you to keep Henrik with Lundestrom, which I think makes a lot of sense. Yeah. And, you know, then it just becomes about, like, is it, what what is it at that point? Comtois, Vetrano, Strom, I guess, maybe is your third line, your second line at that point? Yep. Uh, here's a question I want to ask you, actually. Now, since we're just kind of talking about the lineup in a certain way. Do you think Grant and Jones is cemented as the fourth line foundation? I I think for now, because I mean I I don't see any of, of obviously McTavish, Strom, Terry, Henry, Zegers, Vitrano going down to the fourth line. Isaac Lindstrom, they seem to have him cemented as the third line center. I don't see him moving out of the center position, and I don't see Derek Grant getting promoted to third line center. So then that's locked there. So then the only mm-hmm. guys who could go down are Silverberg, who went down to the fourth line last game for Regenda hopping up to the second line and Henrik jumping down to the third line, and Maxime Comtois. So I think that's the one there that I could see is if Jones is going to come out, then Maxime Comtois is probably going to go down or Regenda is going to go back down and play Grant Regenda Silverberg and Max Jones gets given an opportunity. I, I don't think they are cemented on it that Grant Jones, they're, they love it and they're going to stick with it. I think obviously they were put together how they did for preseason, but I think moving Regenda off means I think Jones has just as much a chance to potentially move off in that line. He's another guy I could see if they wanted to throw him up on that top line with Zegers and Terry if they get put together to see mm-hmm. what he could do. But again, you could make that case for Maxim Comtois as well as being a good fit for that line. Just any kind of big bodies who can you know, find open space and, and crowd the front of the net. Like they'll work with Trevor Zegers and Troy there, Terry. Theoretically, it's the, what we've said for, uh, Getzlaff and Perry for how many years and just put a guy who can get their stick on the ice and drive to the right. net and, and they'll do well. So I don't think he's cemented there by any means. And, and he'd be a guy, I think at some point I'd like to see go up in the lineup. And like, this is no, criticism of Regenda, but I think if Regenda can get promoted to, you know, second line minutes, then I think Max Jones has done enough to get that opportunity at some point as well. Yeah, I think um my brain just blanked on me. Um so oh oh that's what it was. I wanted to ask you about this. So we're kind of seeing it 
mentioned a little bit here by Luchador, and, and it's kind of been a thing that I've seen pop up a little bit, even just heading into the season because a lot of the uncertainty around the lineup and where players are at. Do you see a situation where Jacob Silverberg finishes this year in San Diego? No. Yeah, unless it's like injury rehabbing or something like that. I, I can't... I can't see them taking that step now. Like I would, I will say it's not impossible, and obviously that's kind mm-hmm. of a cop out for sure. But if nobody is moved out from this forward group, and it's it's hard to pick anybody that would be moved out. It's more so from the defense where we could see guys getting moved out. If Perot or Tracy or even Glenn Godden, who started pretty good, deserve a call up at that point, and nobody else is easy to send down. Like right now, the only easy person to send down is Pavel Regenda. He'll probably be the first guy that gets sent down for call up because he's waiver exempt. Other than that, anybody else would have to clear waivers or the only other waiver exempt players are Zegris and Drysdale, and you're not sending them down to, to San Diego hopefully at, at any point. So Silverberg would have to clear waivers. And I, and I think it, it could be possible if he's struggling at that point because he does, out of everybody here, make the most sense. He wouldn't get claimed, more than likely, in getting sent down to waivers where the other guys probably would. And if you need to make room for Jacob Perot or Braden Tracy, that becomes the most likely scenario. So whereas I, where I don't think it's going to happen, if there was ever a scenario where they felt, without a doubt, they had to call one of these guys up, and they needed to make room for it, I could see him being the, the guy who gets sacrificed and maybe to just revamp his game a little bit or get him up to speed. Who knows? Just a you know a little bit of an incentive to say, hey, let's go. We need you to be playing a little bit better. And I know he's dealing with, with an injury, and, and it's tough for him. But he has definitely, if I had to pick a player to start the season that, that has looked off a step noticeably more than anybody else has been Silverberg. Yeah, I agree. I think that for me is kind of kind of the thing, right? Is I think if you're Anaheim, there's not a huge rush to move on from him. And he has via his time with the team and you know, just the consummate professional he's been here, the role that he has played on, you know, really meaningful teams for this franchise I don't see them sending him down unless it is an implicit statement that his NHL career is over yeah it's hard to come back from that just because I don't know he's only got one year left the cap hit is 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 too high you know, I, I mean, it was easy to argue it was too high even when he was playing well and healthy. Yeah. Um, He's a good know, candidate for a buyout next year, in my he opinion. He is a good yeah. candidate for a buyout. And that is, I think, the thing for me is it is more likely that he gets bought out this summer than he sees San Diego next year. Yeah. Um, And so I, I, I think for me... I don't see a situation in which someone wants to add him unless, I mean, you could talk me into maybe Ottawa wants to bring him in as like a super depth forward to just 
eat a little bit of cap and be a professional, right? Like we'll give you a sixth or some shit and we'll take the whole thing, but it doesn't really make sense. Maybe that's a situation where you send him to Arizona or if you waive him, maybe a team like Arizona is inclined to claim him because he does have the cap hit. There's only a year left. He is a professional. Like, yeah, but those are teams that are, oddly enough in a position similar to where Anaheim is where it's like we're bringing him in not for his play but for all of the other things he can provide us whether that's professionalism or yeah. cap hit hit the cap and, floor for next year um, so yeah so I, I gotta address something here in the chat though so there's two things um our bet said he can't see Anaheim buying him out I think if the, the Ducks bought up Corey Perry uh, I get 100% see them buying out Jakob Silverberg, and yes... Also, to that point, yeah, Silverberg isn't Pat Verbeek's guy. Mm-hmm. He has no response. He has no loyalty to him, for good or for bad. I'm not I'm not making a, you know, a, a judgment call on that. I'm just saying he has no loyalty to Silverberg. It's the best thing that he can do is buy him out, take that you know sub-2 million cap hit for two years, and just take the it's roster It's really spot. only for the one, the one, two. It's either your options are take that extra 1.75 for the year that he would normally not be here or have him on the full 5.25 for next right. year and not maybe not play him. And I, I think that's the thing you, you got to remember here is we're already struggling to kind of figure out where he's going to fit now. We're not talking about next year where all these guys are going to be here, presumably next year. You're also going to have another season of Perot and Tracy and other guys on the way that if there's not a spot for him, you can't just hold on to him. And not play right. him, like that. That's just not a situation that's going to work. Whether it's the locker in the locker room or for the player or for the team in general. So then the buyout becomes the 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 likely option at that point. Probably the best option for both the team and the player. And one point seven five million dollars in the 2024-2025 season is not going to hurt the Ducks. Not it really isn't. I mean, yes, you know, at that point, Terry and Zegers and Drysdale should be signed to extensions. They'll know where they are. I cannot imagine that that is going to hurt them. That will weigh into the decision for sure. But he's not getting traded. Nobody's taking him without you having to move assets out to get him. We've heard what the price is on trying to move salary cap out. It makes no sense for the Ducks to pay to move him out when, as people have mentioned, they can just keep him next year at the full hit. I think it does end up being a buyout just because that is the best option for probably him and for the team at that point. Because I don't see how they fit him in next year when he's playing fourth line minutes right now. Mm-hmm. For sure. I, I completely agree with you. I, I think, you know, a buyout makes sense and just a quote-unquote injury retirement, right? Where it's just like he goes... And I think that for me is the thing I didn't say earlier that I wanted to mention is the reason I even posed the question at the end of the season is is because he is coming off of an injury. He is, you know, over 30. Like there are parts of this that just mean it's going to take him a little bit longer to get back up to speed. So I don't even think that the team is going to feel, one, any pressure, but two mm-hmm. – any confidence in what he is or isn't at this point until middle of December. You've got to give him time. You've got to give him an opportunity to get his feet under him to get back to used to playing, you know, three games a week and at this level. And and I don't think it's going to be an issue to, you know, moderate his ice time. He's all, we already saw him second game. He got moved down to the fourth line. So like, 
there seems to be an understanding and a willingness about where he's at and what it could mean. But there's also no reason to get ahead of yourself, you know, when it's not a thing that's going to be resolved more than likely until June. Yeah, and there's also nobody knocking on the door to replace him that needs to come up right now. Uh, Drew Hunter. No. Elite fourth line right winger. No, no. It's... Right now, it's very flexible because, like we said, Pavel Organic can get sent down to San Diego. He doesn't have to go through waivers. Right. So when Sam Carrick comes back, that's an easy move to make. You know, it sucks for Agenda. If he's playing well enough, maybe they have to make a decision on somebody else. But he's the easiest move to send down right now to account for Sam Carrick coming back. Where it gets difficult eventually is if Perot or Tracy or somebody starts playing well enough that you have to call them up. And then that's where you get into the situation there where, okay, maybe this is where Silverberg is scratched or gets sent down to make way for this guy. But right now, for the foreseeable future, they have this flexibility to work with and give them more time to evaluate these guys in San Diego. I mean, Brayden Tracy started great. He's got three points in two games, but that's not enough for a call-up yet. And you need, he needs more time down there. It's after a first kind of good breakout year in San Diego last year. And then Jacob Pro had a pretty good year. He started off a little bit slow. Give him some time to get going. If he gets hot, then maybe he gets a call up at some point. I think at, at some point, these guys are going to get more than the one game that they got last year. But it's going to take time 10, 15, mm-hmm. 20, 25 games into the season before we see this. And other roster situations to shake out guys coming back from injury, guys potentially going out with injury. So I, I think throughout the entirety of the season, we're rarely going to be in a scenario where Jacob Silver doesn't have a spot in this lineup to play, which is why I just, I just can't see them ever really needing to or having to send him down to San Diego where it just gets more likely in the offseason knowing that other guys are going to push for mm-hmm. roster spots next year that that's when you uh, you end up doing, using the buyout as a way to kind of get out of that contract and allow him to kind of go find a better situation for himself as well. Yeah, I this is something I've I've kind of talked about and written about before, but like I, I really do wish the NHL would pick up NBA in season type buyouts because if he can just have a decent year and just look like he's a capable defensive player, he would be an awesome team to buy or he'd be an awesome player to, to buy out and have somebody pick up for, you know, yeah. less than a million a year to just add to their bottom six. Like, I think he would be great for that. Uh, but the NHL is stupid, and they don't listen to me, even though I would make them more money. Uh, we had that whole uh, episode we did on yeah, I know. ways we, to improve We did the it NHL. twice. Yeah. I don't, um, think, I don't think anybody listened to that one. So That's fine. At least anybody from the NHL. Um, all right. I, I'm going to see if there's any other notes from the first two games uh, before we kind of move on to some topics here. I, I think we covered McTavish looking excellent in his debut. John Klingberg looked really good on the power play in, in game one. Um, you, you know, I think I sent you a message during that game. You know, This is kind of why they bought him when you watch the way he kind of bossed and, and controlled that power play throughout that mm-hmm. game. Um, didn't get as many opportunities in, in game two. And, and you saw the the kind of inverse to his game on the defensive side of things. There was some struggles there and some issues with the defensive side of the game, but that was to be expected with John Klingberg. But when he's on and when he has the puck on his stick, you see exactly why um, the Ducks brought him in 
and are hoping they can get a lot for him at the end of the year. For Toronto with the shot, we saw that as well. Uh, John Gibson turning into prime Getzlaff in OT with that that stretch pass for Troy Terry. I loved that one. Um, the only thing I wanted to get into was Zegers' goal, and specifically his um, utilization on the power play, which we saw from last year. We always talked about the Ducks needing a trigger guy on the power play, even when Zegers was a prospect in the system. Did you ever think that he would end up being that guy on the power play? Because when you look at scouting reports as him and when he was coming up playing college, and the only issue anybody ever had was, is he going to score goals at the NHL level because his shot isn't that great? And then he puts up over 20 goals in his rookie year. See, and, and then becomes so the, a power play trigger man, a one-time option. That's fascinating to me because and, – and this could just be my – what I had heard, right? But I never heard that his shot wasn't good. I had always heard that he was similar to Ryan Getzloff in so much as he had a good shot. Getzloff had a great shot. But, but he had a good shot that he didn't use. And yeah. there were questions about if his goal scoring would come just as a – a a, a uh, an out. Uh, People just hadn't just, seen it. It just right, wasn't just, utilized enough to analyze it as a skill set of his because it was always the playmaking and the creativity right. and everything else. And so I think what we've seen since he's come to the NHL is that it almost feels like his being a primary playmaker was more of the result of him being the best playmaker at every level he'd been at or on every team he was on more than likely, right? You know, he did come up through NTDP, so, you know, you can talk about Jack Hughes and, and other players who we know are, are very creative, very great passers. But, you know, he, he was that kind of player where he was going to be the guy setting everybody else up. And what we've seen in this short time is that he is more than willing to shoot. So I don't even know that he's uh, he's not that he's the trigger man, he is a trigger man. And I think the thing for me that I liked is if you just look at power plays and you just look at them, you just look at the umbrella. Terry, Klingberg, Zegris is three guys who can shoot, mm -hmm. three guys who can pass, three guys who can skate. Like it's a perfect top of the power play. And you know, to the extent that you hope his development takes him there. Dreesdale seems like the guy who's going to step into that Klingberg spot four or five years, even if Klingberg signs, a you know, an extension or whatever, carton for the horse shit. But you can see the way that that's going to progress. And as uh, Luchador said, McTavish is the guy that you're like, he's the trigger man. Yeah. He is the guy that is going to be the one-time threat on that team. Um and until then, or even if then, the fact that Zegris and Terry are both willing to shoot and both willing to pass and are really just whoever's going to score the goal should take the shot. Like, there's a lot to be excited about that maybe you would have been a little concerned about before we really got to see these guys at this level, uh, just based on some of their reputations. Yeah, and, and you can see, like, you know when, if whether Klingberg signs an extension or not, you know Jamie Drysdale is going to take over that spot as well. Well, the good thing is he can skate, he can shoot, he's a playmaker. So that mm -hmm. makes sense. He's fit. The Troy Terry is going to be there. If Mason McTavish takes off that, takes that half wall spot from 
uh, Trevor Zegras. You can see Trevor Zegras doing what Ryan Strom does on the power play, which net right now, which is kind of a bit of a roamer um, and being, you know, a, a kind of jumping into the middle and jumping wherever they're kind of needed on the ice. And then you can put somebody else as the behind the net uh, guy. Or even put Zegras behind the net as a, as a puck distributor from behind the net and below the boards as well. So there, there's definitely spots where you can see him. And, and Zegras is one of those guys on the power play where you can put anywhere. And mm-hmm. as we talked about earlier, is a guy who loves to attack players and attack space. He's a guy who will just kind of free roam on the power play and, and right. you know, pull defenders, find space, create opportunities for Troy Terry and for Jamie Drysdale and, and Mason McTavish on the power play. So it'll be interesting to see how that evolves over the season as Mason McTavish gets more comfortable. If that if he evolves into that role this year, or if that becomes kind of a, a further down the road thing, but I've just loved, you know, Trevor Zegers as that guy on that spot because it's, you know, from it's gone from surprise the first few times he unleashed a, a one-timer from that spot to that you look for him now to be that guy that's going to take that shot. Man, give the kid credit. He puts everything into those one-timers. He winds up well above his head and just unloads on them. So, I gotta, yeah, man, I got to give him some credit. He, he Game one, he looked great. I uh, was all over the place. Game two, again, we've mentioned this a thousand times now. Um, everybody kind of had an off game as as it is when you lose 7-1. to one, But he's doing all the things that uh, you would expect from him and and a guy that's going to fight for uh, you know a point-per-game pace throughout the entire season. Yeah, no, I mean, and again, I think it's, this is the, I don't know, maybe this is just me being fucking stupid, but like, it feels like this is kind of, well, there's not a first time for that, so, uh, but it feels like this is kind of the, the evolution of where we're headed, right, with hockey, which is, it's less about guys with specific roles, and more about guys with skill sets, and creativity and a willingness to play high skill aggressive offensive hockey right like you're always going to have guys like cole caulfield where you're just like yeah he shoots that's what he does he just scores fucking goals and we love it but the big step forward is building lineup of guys who can do both of it and maybe they're elite at one more than the other which obviously is fine and is natural nobody's elite at everything but but what you want is to create kind of an offensive ecosystem in which all of these guys are able to take advantage of the opportunities in front of them based on the way that they play yeah it's not it's not it's less predictable at that point yeah and you know like to me like this was I felt really old man about this during the first game, but it was just kind of something that stuck out to me is Zegers came down the the right side and he went to make that kind of Patrick Kane spinning, no look backhand pass across the slot. And I was watching him and the pass ended up being, I think like three or four feet in front of the, the guy who was on the other side. I don't remember who it was. And my thought watching that was the next step in his evolution is where he holds it there. And he just makes a spin move and he uses that spin to get more separation from the player who's defending him and drives to the net. And like, you know, maybe that's impossible because, you know, I'm stupid and don't know what I'm talking about. Maybe that's just not his preference. Maybe the the suddenness and the volatility of that pass coming out of nowhere is, is the benefit. But I just think the opportunity to kind of have a move and a counter move in that way is huge. And when you look at Anaheim's 
you know, guy is kind of in the pipeline, I think with the exception of Perot, you would say most of these guys that you can hope are top of the lineup guys are 50-50 talents, right? Like Pasquiel, we know, can shoot. But he's also a great playmaker. And that is what's allowed him to be successful at the levels he's been at, despite not being a strong skater, is he's not just one thing. He's not just going to sit here and take shots. Or he's not just only going to pass. Like, you can't really play to a tendency with him. And, uh, you know, you've got guys like Gaucher and... and um, Colangelo's on his way, too. Yeah. But, I mean, you know, I think at this point... It's fair to expect Colangelo is a, a third to fourth liner, um, if nothing else, just because of the talent ahead of him in the in the in the, in the pipeline. Yep. Um, but you know, even Tracy, right, is is more of that kind of two way, two kind of two two ways to play it kind of guy. And so I think there's a lot here for Anaheim to be excited about as far as the uh, potential lineup and roster flexibility that they're going to have with some of these guys they have in the pipeline. Yeah. You know, and they've got five picks in the first two rounds this year, so we're going to get even more guys. Yeah, one of those will be Connor Bedard. So. <laughs> I don't know That's how the... he's going to fall to the second round, but it's going to be so crazy. Uh, yeah, I don't know. Some some teams have started. I mean, Chicago and, and Arizona have shown early why Can we have them pinpointed for the bottom. So we got to get Connor Bedard in touch with Laramie Tunzel so he can uh, hit a gas mask bong during the draft and just plummet all the way to the second <laughs> round because. Yeah. Laramie Tunsil fell from like fourth overall to like uh, what did he end up in Miami at like fifteenth or something crazy, and hockey would lose their mind and Connor Bedard would fall to like the fifth round if he if footage of him using a gas mask bong leaked the night of the draft. What it, uh, there was a uh, I sent this video in our chat or no, I think I tweeted this out. Uh, he hit he reverse hit somebody in one of the first games of the season. I think he, he said get shit on kid. so i don't i don't think that's gonna hurt his draft stock any unfortunately but um he's a stud man i mean hot take right there guys is Connor bedard might be pretty good yeah he started off the year um i think on a over two point per game pace already so to be expected um you want to address a question in the chat from brett real quick he said i I think this was sarcasm with this too but he said you think the guy the the first two games are the identity of the team or maybe it'll get more cohesive of everyone uh, as everyone gets used to each other yeah obviously that's going to take time um every line had somebody new on it this year until um well, I guess other than the third line for both games, Comtois, Lindstrom, Silverberg, who'd played some time together, and then Henrik Lindstrom, Comtois, who'd played together at times. But Zegers playing with Vitrano and then Regenda is some new guys on that. Obviously, Strom and McTavish as well are new additions to this team for this year. Um, and then you know the fourth line as well, having you know Max Jones back, you can count him essentially as a new uh, a new addition to this team in a sense of, of missing. Um, for the entire year last year. And then on the blue line, Kulikov, Klingberg, Bolyu, um added to this team as well. So every every pair had somebody new on it. So yeah, 100%. It's going to take time as guys get used to each other as they swap the lines around, find some chemistry, figure out who's the best fit with who. So I, I do think it's a bit of both. I think you can you can get a glimpse of the identity of the team through the first two games. But of course, things are going to change. As players get you know used to the system, as guys get used to each other, so I, I do think that it is obviously a bit early to say you know this is what they are, um, 
but I, I, I do think, you know, I'm, I'm walking the line here, walking the fence, not trying to pick a side here, but, um, there, there is, uh, there is more that's going to come as guys get used to each other. And we start to kind of find the best fits, whether we talked about it's Zegris playing with Terry, or if it's McTavish eventually coming to the middle of the ice, or if it's Strom playing with Vitrano mm-hmm. and some familiarity from last year, how does that third line pan out? Cause so far it hasn't looked that great. What does the fourth line evolve to? Right. So, I think it's going to take time, and then I think the defense pairs are going to stay the same for, for I don't really see them changing other than a few guys swapping in and out of that bottom pair of left D. Uh, but it's going to take time for those guys to get used to each other. Fowler and Klingberg are going to need to take time to adjust. Kulikov and Drysdale are going to need to take time to get used to to each other's game. So for sure, yeah, 100%. It's going to take time for these guys to get used to each other before we can get a clear identity of what this team is this year. Uh, I'm going to disagree with you and say, yeah, this is exactly what the team is. A a, a top-heavy talent roster with question marks and, 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 and spotty depth where the forward, the top of the forward group is stronger than the top of the defensive group and a coach that most people expect not to be here for the next five years. Like, I think most of us expect him to be gone by the end of the season. And so, you know, I think for me, it's like both things are true in so much as, like, as the season goes on, we are certainly going to see them improve. We're going to see them get more comfortable with each other. But you're going to see that from everybody. So within the context of the league, I don't know that they're going to look all that much better. Hopefully they look a little less helpless in their own end. You know, there are times where they really have just been kind of running around. Um, Joke's on you, moron. The Dodgers suck, and I'm the only person who seems to be completely fine accepting that they suck. I don't think they're good. I don't care that they won the most games that blah, blah, blah. They're suck. They're the Dodgers. This isn't new. Uh, but no, I, I, you know, I, I think this is exactly what this team is, right? Is there going to be a team that there's going to be games where they're managed to keep themselves in it just by sheer force of offensive will? And there are teams, there are going to be games where they're out of it in 10 minutes because the other team is either that much more talented, that much more structured, or both. Um you know, I, I think if you want to get an idea of where this team is at, this first four games are perfect because we saw them play a bad team and win. We saw them play what we expect to be a bad team and lose. Now we're going to watch them play one of the teams that is expected to be at the top of the league and a team that is hoping to be on the upswing and is largely timeline-wise a peer. Mm-hmm. Yeah, team this in a, is, a very similar spot. New, New Jersey's in a very similar spot to the Ducks. Mm-hmm. I think they're a little bit farther ahead, obviously. Mm-hmm. Uh, if for no other reason than Keisher and Hughes are already on their next contracts. Yeah. Uh, you know, I, I think the top of that defense is a little bit stronger uh, with, with, with Dougie and, and things like that. But um, this first four games is a pretty perfect first four games to get an idea of where this team is at. And I think ultimately it'll be where we figured, which is they should win about a third of their games and probably end up averaging, you know, about a goal and a half a game in, 
what do you call it, in like a scoring disparity, right? Yeah. Yeah, I, I, I think for me that New Jersey game is a, is a real benchmark game for how they should look early on here because I do think of a lot of teams that they're going to face early on. The New, New Jersey is the closest in terms of having you know um, the, the same profile type of players, young players breaking into the lineup and Alexander Holtz this year. You've got you know Klingberg and Hamilton. You've got Fowler. Uh, and Graves on on that side of things, right? So you, and you've got two netminders who are kind of tandeming in Vanacek and Blackwood. And I know Gibson's still the starter here, but they're going to split more games this year between Gibson and Stolarz and guys who've played well at times and have struggled. So I think that's a benchmark game because if you go into that game and you look awful uh, against a team who should be in the same spot as you, that that's a tough look. And in, in if you're going to finish much worse than this team this year, then then it's it's going to be a difficult season to go into. I mean, the, the game against the Rangers tomorrow, we know that's going to be a difficult game. And it wouldn't be surprising to see it be similar to the Islanders game in that the Rangers are one of the Stanley Cup favorites early on and have looked it in their first few games here where they've just looked like they're, they're unbeatable at times, the way they play. I mean, they, they took it to the Tampa Bay Lightning in their first game of the season and looked like they are a team that's going to be competitive this year. So yeah, that, that New oh, Jersey George. game. Yeah, that New Jersey game will be a uh, a benchmark one on on Tuesday. Okay, I if you might have seen this in the doc. Don't look now cuz I'm going to see if you can guess it if you haven't. Okay, I haven't. Six players um have an expected goals for percentage over 50% in through the first two games. Only six on the Ducks roster. Okay. Five of them are you we kind of expected one of them is maybe a bit surprising, but okay. who do you who do you think are the six guys that have an expected goals four percentage above fifty percent? And no, Brett Blackwood, I don't think is good, but I think you could put him in the same category as like a Stolars. I think he's a little bit better than that. Uh, okay, wait, 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 wait. Above fifty percent? Yep. Only only six players have an expected goals for percentage above 50% through the first two games. Terry, Zegris, Rico, Fowler, Regenda, Grant? Nope. So you got uh, Zegris and Terry and Henrique. Okay. So there's three others. Drysdale? Yep. Uh, Jones. No. We'll give you two more guesses. Um, so you have Zegris, so, Terry, Drysdale, Henrik. All right. Uh, is it one forward, one D? Two or forwards. Two forwards? Drysdale was Strom and Petrano? Strom and McTavish. So it's Zegris, Terry, Strom, Drysdale, Henrik, McTavish. Interesting. I haven't expected goals for percentage over 50. Uh, Drysdale was a surprising one for me. In a sense, I, he and, looks and, so fucking good, man. Yeah, like, he, he looks I, great. It has not been the most uh, against the highest level of competition. Like, I'm not trying to get way out ahead of ourselves, but like, he's looked really good. He's been much more physically engaged than I remember. That absolutely carried over from the preseason, and he's just more assertive. Like, especially in his own end, he's just much more assertive and decisive. Like, he is not waiting. He is going to the play. And it's wonderful to see early on. Like, you know, he's still a fucking, you know, what, 5'11 offensive defenseman. But, like, at the end of the day, like, these are the kinds of showings that you want from him that that are optimistic. Um, he's looked really good. Gio asked, is that from 
um, natural stat trick it is. So Adam Henrique had a 58.69 expected goals for percentage. Mason McTavish is at 57.29. Trey Terry at 53. Trevor Zegers at 52.2. Ryan Strom at 52.1. Jamie Drysdale at 51.3. Um, that's at five on five through the first two games. So after that, uh, Kulikov, Fowler, Klingberg all at 48.8, 48.9. Lindstrom at 46.6, and then it, it kind of falls off there. Come to our Vitrano, Regenda, and to the very bottom of the list is uh, Nathan Beaulieu with a 3.69, but he played one game. Did you say 3.69? Yes, 3.69 expected goals for a percentage. <laughs> yeah, it's, uh, he's been on the ice for .04 expected goals for, uh, Beaulieu has. Wow. So not, that not is a, very uh, surprising. Not a great look from him, but yeah, I mean, I mean, listen, like those are those are six guys. I guess you would expect, you know, maybe the 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 ones not in their Vitrano, maybe a bit surprising because he's playing with Zegris, um, Cam Fowler, John Klingberg. But if one of them's not there, both of them are probably not going to be there, right? So, mm-hmm. uh, and Kulikov, you know, dragged ahead a little bit, I think, from obviously Jamie Drysdale. Um, but Kulikov has a higher expected goals against than Jamie Drysdale. They have the exact same expected goals for so. Drysdale won not on the ice at five on five, bumped that that number. Uh, when not mm-hmm. with Kulikov, he's bumped that number down a little bit, which is good to see from him. But yeah, I mean, we talked about this a little bit earlier too. Um, Jamie Drysdale has just looked great through the first few games. Is what you you would have hoped for for getting paired on a second guy, a unit with a guy like Kulikov, who's a bit more of a defensive defenseman that he's able to kind of use his skill set to his advantage and not have to worry about Cam Fowler flying up the ice and, and having to, to cover Has anybody him. ever had to worry about Cam Fowler flying up the ice? Yeah, Jamie Drysdale last season when he had to use his skating more often than not to catch up to the guy that was on an odd man rush the other way. So. <laughs> um yeah, man, I, I think those are those are all positive signs. Like you want to see Troy Terry and Trevor Zegers there. You want to see Strom and McTavish in that mix and Jamie Drysdale and that. And Adam Henrique's just kind of one the, one of those consistent guys. That, you know, he's leading them all in, in expected goals for percentage uh, and in, in expected goals for. Or actually, sorry, Cam Fowler and Klingberg are leading in expected goals for. They just leak uh, scoring chances against. That's the only problem. 1.95 expected goals for, for Fowler and Klingberg. 2.05 against. So that's yeah. that's the only reason. But all gas, no breaks for that pairing. We expected yep. that to be the case. So, mm-hmm. yeah. Okay. Uh, so I guess there's a couple of little things we want to hit. I don't know how much more you kind of wanted to get to with this, but, you know, it's it's two games. Uh, first things first. Rocco Grimaldi has finally signed the uh, AHL contract. We kind of all expected him to sign uh and it is important to note that that is an ahl deal if he wants to sign an nhl deal he or if he wants to join the ducks he will still have to sign an nhl deal and i believe would have to go through waivers after having signed it speaking of players having to go through waivers after being signed to an nhl contract eddie does Sonny Milano get claimed? I'm not even saying by Anaheim. I'm not even going all the way to the full bit, but I'm just asking. Do you think there's any way Sonny Milano gets claimed? No. no. You don't think so? No. I just I a guy who was let go by Anaheim went on on trial as a PTO to Calgary, didn't get signed. 
I can't imagine there's a full list of teams that are like, yeah, we needed this guy, and he's going to get claimed on waivers from, from Washington here. Um, it would be really funny to see Anaheim claim him after all this just to bring him back. Um, I, you know, the, the, the crazy thing is you, you see a spot where he could fit too, right? Because like, I don't. I mean, listen. Like Regan, we already talked about Regan being an easy slot down. Sam Carrot comes back, and you have you know. A but 12, that's not the same thing with... to me. I don't. I don't think that's the same thing because if you, uh, I can't believe we're doing this. If you claim Milano, like you're expecting him to be in the top six, right? I don't think necessarily. I think you can you can play him in the top nine. He's so not going to be a fourth think liner. You can do what? Lundestrom, Milano, Regenda. I, I think it's at the cost of Regenda getting sent down. And then it becomes like Jones, Grant, Silverberg is, is the fourth line. Sonny Milano basically plays in, somewhere in the top six, or in the top nine, sorry, wherever they need him to slot in at that point, right? So Lindstrom, uh, Zegra, Strom are the centers. We already said the wingers are going to shift around a bit, so it's hard to predict kind of where he would play. Maybe it's with Zegris and Vitrano. That could be a fit based off we know the chemistry between Zegris and, and Milano from last year. And I just like the idea of Zegris playing with Milano and Vitrano. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> uh, but no, I like we're, we're going to have it. Like, no, I don't think he, he gets claimed. I think he ends up going through waivers and sticks with the Cavs. And you know, I, wish, I wish him well. He's a better opportunity there, I think, than he would here right now. Mm-hmm. And I think he's going to be in a better position than uh, if he had managed to stick around in Calgary, too. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, they've got Blake Coleman playing third line, and he wouldn't get above Blake Coleman to play top six in Calgary. So Right. Or Dylan Dubé. So, yeah, I think I think it's a good opportunity for him. But, no, I, I don't see him getting claimed, and I don't see him getting claimed by the Ducks either. It just would be wild to see that, that full circle. It would be a really weird, awkward situation, I think, to claim him now after not signing him. Him not like signing a PTO in Calgary, not getting offered a contract, and then to sign a contract with another team, you're like, yeah, okay, we'll take you back. <laughs> we'll take you back on waivers at this point. Like that, that, that would is... be a weird one. Yeah, it rem- the first thing that popped into my mind was who was the goalie that Toronto signed that Arizona was like, oh yeah, we'll take that guy. Oh, oh yeah, I know who you're and talking about. I don't remember his name. Toronto, that was so funny. Yeah, it was a Swedish guy. I can't remember his name though. But uh, yeah, that was near, so... that was near the deadline, I think. From last yeah. Year. So speaking of goalies in Toronto, did you hear that Matt Murray is going to be headed to long-term IR and minimum it of could, four weeks could result in Nick Robertson coming up? He's up. He's up. He is. He got called up. Yep. At what point, dude? I mean, seriously. Like, I feel like every time we talk about Toronto, but like, to me, if you do not have enough cap space to bring up an ELC player, you're poorly managed. So they they sent. Him down and signed Zach Ashton Reese to a specific amount so they would have exactly four dollars in cap space to be to be cap compliant. My thing I, is I understand you're strapped against the cap, but at some point, like you are ruining a player's development. There was nothing more Nick Robertson could do in preseason to earn a spot on this team. He led every single player in the National Hockey League in points in preseason. And got sent back down to the American Hockey League. And it wasn't until the Leafs were able to free up cap space from Matt Murray going on the LTIR that they said, okay, we'll bring you back up and now you can play. Dude, like, at what point 
is it not even about player development and just about the fact that you have four of the top 40 forwards in the league? Yeah. Like, at what point is it just not a legitimate fucking problem that you have to, the goalie that you brought in to address the goalie crisis is hurt and now you can actually bring up this young kid to maybe bring in some scoring depth. Like, how is this not an indictment from the top down of where Toronto is at right now? Like, I, just, I, I think I also Dubis don't is smart, understand. but like, at what point? At what point is this like a real problem? Yeah, it already is, and and I understand. Like Gio said, the LTR gave them room to actually carry extra skaters, but the decision was made to sign Zach Ashton Reese instead of keep Nick Robertson in the lineup. They could have just kept which, Nick Robertson up. Which listen, like I I get it in a vacuum. Robertson is uh, waiver exempt. You bring in another roster player, you sign him for cheap league minimum, and when you have the cap space eventually from injuries or whatever, then you can bring Nick Robinson up. But, man, it has to be tough for a player who does everything they can to show they should stick around and then all of a sudden doesn't get the chance. For for me, the whole thing with Toronto, uh, that John Tavares situation is, is the big one for me. I like John Tavares. I think he's a great leader for that team. He's a luxury that they don't need for what they're paying him to be a second-line center. I understand Marner. I think they need him. I understand Matthews. Obviously, they need him. I even understand Nylander because I don't think he's making that much even to be a second-line winger. John Tavares is making $11 million Mm -hmm. as a second-line center. That's the problem because you could have some very good utility players making 5 or $6 million each in place of John Tavares, and I think this team is better. I think this team is better paying two guys four and a half, two guys five in place of John Tavares to spread out the depth a little bit. I think you could bring in um, a very good second-line center that is a, a, a second-liner of 100% behind Austin Matthews, and, and this team is better if to, to spread out the depth there. I uh, here's, a, here's a fun thing is... Do not propose could... a John Tavares to Anaheim trade. No, 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 no. <laughs> but they could have Ricard Raquel and Adam Henrique on the deals that they are on right now. Mm-hmm. And it would only be less than a million dollars more expensive. Yeah. That's absurd. Yeah, it, it's it, it's ridiculous. I, I mean, listen, like... Strom's getting paid what here? Five? Five flat. Five flat. Five by five. So you tell me they signed Strom, and I'm trying to think of a, a, a winger who signed for around five, five and a half recently. Um, but let's just say you signed a generic kind of 20-goal, 50-point winger for $5 million and you bring in Strom. Are they better with Strom and that profile of a winger or with just John Tavares? Mm. I think they're better with the two of them. Because you could play Strom and whoever that winger is with Nylander. You play Bunting, Matthews, Marner. You've got depth now on on that. And you can you can add in other areas. Um, or, or it's Nick Robertson becomes the, the guy to play with Strom, Nylander, and Robertson. And you use that money elsewhere to, to buy a couple guys to fill out your bottom six. I, I just think that John Tavares deal is, is really what what hurts Toronto from being that kind of next-level team. You can't pay a guy who's going to play second line. 11 million dollars 
JT Miller is going to be only making eight million dollars. Yeah, and he's. Well, I just. I don't want to say he's better, but he's just as at least just as good as John Tavares. So, which is wild. Yeah, that's that's yeah. Oh my god, dude. what the fuck are they doing over there? I don't know. Um. All right. All right. Quick. Quick. Few notes. Oh, we we mentioned Grimaldi signs an AHL contract. Uh, through the first two games in San Diego, there's some standouts. Uh, Oli Ulevi, four points in his first two games. He might be a guy who gets a call up and plays uh, Benoit and you don't work out in that bottom pairing. I think he's maybe the, one of the first names off the, the the sheet to get a call up and, and give a shot to play with Shattenkirk down there. Um, Nick Bruyard, Bruyard, I don't know. He's got a, a French Canadian last name, and I'm going to butcher it. He has he's leading the goals. He's a defenseman leading the goals with five points in two games. So maybe you look at him. Um, I sure I assume that you will get in just as much trouble as I do for getting the name wrong. Yeah, yeah. I know uh, a few people will get on me for that one. I, it's it's one of those weird ones where it's like B R O U I L L A R D. It's like Bruyard. I don't know. Sure, I don't. I'm sure. Um, As I said last yeah. time, I barely learned French was even a language until like three days ago. He leads the goals with uh, the goals with five points in two games. Tracy has three points in two games, and Glenn Godden has two goals, two assists for four points in two games. So good starts for those guys. Um, some early returns from back. I think it's back to back games against the Rain to start the season for them. Um, Pavel Mintikov, we mentioned last show, um, was leading the entire Ontario Hockey League in points. He's had one game since. He put up one assist, so he's got 13 points in his first five games, to start, five or six games to start the season. Unbelievable start from him. Zellweger started a bit slow, but in his third game, he showed exactly why he should have been the CHL Defenseman of the Year last year. He had a hat trick, his first WHL hat trick, and four points in that third game. I sent this to you. I don't know if that's changed now. I know he plays tonight, I think. In his first three games, he had 25 shots on goal. Ten shots in the first game, five in the second, ten in the third. <laughs> so two ten-shot games. Like, that's when you start to realize, like, as a defenseman, like, this guy is just way too good for that league. He's getting that much space to put up ten shots a game. Like, I, I don't understand. Like, that's... It's absurd. It's absurd number. That's absurd. That's, that's an absurd number. Like... Connor Bedard is averaging about six. I think I saw Cam tweeted it out, Cam Robinson, that it's like six and a third shots a game. Yeah, he'd be at like 428 shots across so, the full season. Yeah. So six and a third times three is 25, which means that Olin Zellweger, as a defenseman, is roughly on pace with a generational forward. That is not to say that he's going to blah, 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 get ahead of ourselves. What I'm saying is, as much like you said, he has tons of time and space right now uh, down there to get his shot off, to pick his spots, and to affect the game. It should be a very, very fun year in Anaheim from a, did you see what that prospect just did? Like, we should be able to play that game all year. And uh, if nothing else... Uh, our boy Galimov is going to give us four or five more great gifts this year of him just making some 35-year-old Russian dude look like an idiot, which is the best. But did you know his production means he's not good enough to make the NHL? <laughs> I heard about that. Yeah, I heard he sucks. <laughs> yeah. Um, okay, so there's an, up, there's an update on Zellweger. 
Um, he now has 37 shots through the first six games. So he's averaging 6.16 shots per game. So he tailed it down a little bit. He had four shots, three shots, and then five shots tonight. And he's got four goals and nine points through the first six games. 37, 37 shots on goal. So. Unbelievable. We, we like I've mentioned it a few times to you um, through, since the start of the season. Like the fact that this blue line is going to add Palomintikov and Olin Zellweger to it uh, to Jamie Drysdale is ridiculous. It, it's I, it's going to be unbelievable. Yeah. Oh, uh, speaking of future defensemen, uh, Noah Warren was sent back down to the QMJHL to play with his BFF Tristan. Mm-hmm. Uh, he having a foot injury after surgery. I thought it was interesting that he was kept up to stay rehabbing. I thought that was very I interesting. I think they've done this before. I can't remember the last prospect they did it with, but because of the services, it's not the right word, available to him, the medical staff available to him, it made more sense for him to get the treatment and for the ducks to handle that than to send him mm-hmm. back down to the QMJHL and deal with it there. So yeah, they handled the crappy socialist medicine candidate. <laughs> they handled the bulk of his um, his rehab and his surgery and uh, sent him back down to to finish it off there and hopefully play soon for Gatineau with with Luno. So I, I I can't remember the last prospect they did this for, but I know they've done it in the past where we've seen this where a guy sticks around a little bit longer. I think um, they did it with Larson when he broke his leg, didn't they? Might have been, yeah. There's a few times that I've noticed this happen, yeah. and, and it, it, it makes sense. I, I mean, listen, he's going to get better treatment and better um, care. Yeah, yeah, better care here. So, and and and, and like you said, you know, um, it's kind of nice to be able to look at the blue line pipeline. You know, the the defensive prospects Anaheim has, and and be able to see that there are different guys to fill different roles, right? Like Noah Warren and Tristan Luneau are both defensive-minded types, but Tristan Luneau is more of a positional, transitional, right-handed player, whereas Noah Warren is your more uh, traditional, yeah. big, Him defensive, and physical. Mm-hmm. Yeah, kind of two and, right-handed shutdown guys. Yeah, and, and you know, it as much as we, we spend a bunch of time on this, this pod talking about how structurally and, and talent wise inept that this defense is at the moment. It makes a lot of sense because that's kind of how the forward group felt a few years ago. And now we're like, Oh, look at all these young forwards we have. Like, so it's just part of that process. And, and it's nice to know that while, you know, this year and maybe even next year, it might get a little rough at times as far as, uh, the team's ability to keep pucks out of their own net. Uh, the future is very bright. Um, and, and that's really exciting. And, you know, we never want to assume all of these guys are going to hit. And I think that's really what's so exciting is, is most of these guys won't hit. Unfortunately, that's just the way that it goes, but there is enough talent and enough guys that the ones that do hit should be pretty, uh, should be pretty solid. Should be meaningful NHL players for this team. We're starting to see that with the Kings right now. Um, Who? <laughs> where 
some of their guys are hitting. You know, Kaliev, Velarde, uh, Byfield is is get, getting going now at least. Um, and then you've got guys who haven't yet and and might not. And guys like Turcotte and um, Fagamo is is still down in junior or not in junior in the AHL. So they've they've had some guys hit. You know, Brant Clark's on the way. But yeah, I mean, you are starting to see way. that He's process. in the game. He's playing. Yeah, yeah, he's but he's not. I don't think he spends the entire year there. That's the thing. So, I but you're starting to see that you know the injection of these young players, and some of them are hitting and gelling right away, and some of them aren't. And that's what you're going to see, I think, with with the Ducks as, as things move forward, and a lot of these young guys make start making their way. The the thing you need, um, and where you know, maybe I think Kings fans will be a bit concerned is you need the big ones to to, to hit. You know, McTavish. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, I, I would. I I don't know if I'd throw Zellweger into that because he was a second round pick. But you need Mintikov. You need McTavish. You need those guys, the top end draft picks. You need them to hit. Okay, now I'm gonna I'm gonna make you make a choice here. Which do you think is more important to the long term success of Anaheim as a franchise? Gaucher hitting or Zellweger hitting? Zellweger. Yeah. I like Nathan Goche. Um, Still don't if think he, that's how you say it. Pretty if he hits, it. not a team in the fucking world. If he hits his ceiling, which is a, a reliable third line center, like he's a guy you can get elsewhere. It's great to have that in house and mm-hmm. not have to go out and overpay for it somewhere else. But right now, the ceiling for Zellweger is is you know the sky's the limit at this point of him being potentially you know a a top pairing defenseman because of the trajectory he's been on that's more important to hitting than than Goche becoming a third line center because I think you could say okay Gru could be that or um you know I'm trying to think of why all of our centers disappeared from our pipeline but you know it, it's more important to have um the top line top end quality guys in your system hit than than Goche but you know, listen I'd love to see him I mean, he could have made the team this year. I still fully believe that. Yeah, I mean, you've got Perbix, you've got Lapina, you've got uh, there are a couple of guys down in the A right now, like you said with Gru, that could step into that third and fourth line player role. Um, I've just been informed. I'm shouting. I'm sorry. <laughs> all right, all right. So before we get into our game day predictions, uh, I want to know what your ideal forward lines are for the game against the Rangers tomorrow. Because the defense is going to stay the same. So, realistically, the only thing that could probably change significantly is the forward lines. I mean... Uh, I feel like McTavish, Strom, Terry works. Maybe Comtois, Zegris, Vetrano, Henrik, Lundy, Regenda, Jones, Grant, Sophie. I think is where I'll fall on that one. What about you? I think we see Zegris, McTavish, Terry, Strom, Vetrano, Henrik. Uh, you think we get my ideal top six? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I don't think we're going to get it. I'm not. I'm not going to be optimistic about that. But I hope you're right. I think we then see Lindstrom, Comtois, Jones. 
Grant Silverberg Regenda. That's what I'm I'm going with. That's fascinating. That would be my ideal top six as well, but that's um, maybe not what I think we see in a sense, but that would be my ideal lines. Sure, sure, sure. Um, All right. Ducks game predictions. We got four games this week. Ducks game predictions presented by 714 Tickets. We've got the Rangers. These are all on the road. Monday, tomorrow at 4 p.m. Pacific. Ducks on the road back-to-back Tuesday, the 18th at New Jersey. A day off on Wednesday, then down to Boston for a game on the 20th at 4 p.m. as well. And then rounding out the week in Detroit on Sunday at 2 p.m. Pacific time. So an early game out that way. It's going to be tough. Start with tomorrow's game. What do you have it going to be against the Rangers? The Rangers are what, 2-0 to start the season? or do they? Lose? Yeah, I am going to say that's a 2-0 loss. That feels like a 10-0 loss. I'll say yeah, they get outshot. Outplayed, yeah. I think they will get outshot fifty to eighteen and they will lose two nothing. The Rangers mm-hmm. are two and one to start the year. They lost to Winnipeg on a second game of a back to back four to one. But they beat Minnesota seven three and they beat Tampa Bay three to one. Um they have three days of rest between that game against Winnipeg and another three days of rest after the game against Anaheim. I think this is going to be a tough one. I think it it's going to be five two for the Rangers. Who do you think scores for Anaheim? Uh man, I don't I don't know. I hope it's another Trey Terry goal. I think Trey Terry and Zegers will be in the mix. Um, I, I'll go for a Stromer Vitrano goal back uh, back against their former team. I like it. I like it a lot. But you're playing Shesterkin, so that's going to make it tough because he's going to stop pretty much everything. So yeah, he's going to stop all seven shots he sees. Mm-hmm. Poor guy. Do we do we see Gibson or Stolars in this game? Because it's back to back against the Rangers. Probably Gibby. Eh? I honestly almost wonder if we see Stolars start both games. Both mm-hmm. on a back to back. And then I, Gibby I could gets see three the, in a row coming I, out of the week. I could see the tough start for Gibby in the last game, and obviously starting the first game, that maybe we get a Stolars against the Rangers. I think it'd be tough to see unless Stolars gets pulled. Uh, or, or unless he's uh, unbelievable, like a, a second start the next night after that. But I could see Stolars tomorrow. I'll, I'll, I'll say I see Stolars against the Rangers. Um, all right, New Jersey, Tuesday night, the uh, second of a back-to-back. How do you have it going? Uh, 4-3 shootout loss. 4-3 shootout loss. Okay. Hisher, yeah. Hisher's officially back now. He, oh, missed the first, he missed the first game of the season, but he played his first game the other night. The Devils are looking for their first win, and I think the next game for them is Anaheim. They lost 5-2 to Philly and 5-2 to Detroit, so not a great start for them. Vanacek and Blackwood both play, played in each of those games and didn't look good, so I'm going to go with Ducks win. I'm going like to say 3-1 win for Anaheim in New Jersey. Bounce back from a tough loss against the Rangers. All right, Boston on Thursday. Boston started the season 2-0 and with a 5-2 win against Washington and a 6-3 win against uh, Arizona. However, this will also be Boston's third game of the week. They play Florida Monday, Ottawa Tuesday, and then Anaheim on Thursday. Mm. 2-1 overtime loss. Uh, I'm going for a boring 
one nothing loss to the oh, You're braver than me. I wanted to go one nothing uh overtime <laughs> loss. I couldn't do it. I just feel like it's gonna be one of those games, man. I can totally see it, man. Even though totally the Bruins the Bruins have scored a ton of goals to start the year and allowed a ton of goals. I just feel like it's going to be one of those rounding out games for both these teams where it's just going to be a boring, boring game. And we finish off in Detroit. Stevie Wise, Detroit, started 2-0 and to start the year. They uh, beat Montreal 3-0, beat New Jersey 5-2. They play L.A. on Monday, Chicago on Friday, and then the Ducks on Sunday. Uh... We, very weird one. Home against LA on the road against Chicago. Home against Anaheim. So they I'll say, oh, man. I'll say a three-one win. Ugh, I hate it. This is the hardest one for me to to look at because the Detroit's changed so much, and I don't know what to expect from them this year. I'll say three-one uh, win with an empty net goal for the third one. So I'll say it's two-one until the last minute or so. Um, I really was going to go over this week, but I can't do it because I think though I think Verbeek is going to want them to beat Detroit. Yeah, yeah, that's. Uh, you guys help me kick my boss's ass. There's storylines in each of these games. Uh, that's true. Vitrano and Strom return to New York. Uh, what was the storyline? I was. I guess maybe New Jersey. There isn't. I I, I overlooked New Jersey a little bit. I mean, Jack I guess Hughes, what you... somebody put it uh, in here. Jack Hughes versus Zegris. I guess. Right. They're really good friends. Um, Adam had you a know. week. We can. Yeah, we, there you go. We can replay that one as many times as we want to to make our point. Um, Boston at Hampus Lindholm. Back in uh, back against the Ducks. Not for the first time though. Where God, I hope Hampus time? gets a hat trick. That would kick ass. And then uh, Detroit is Pat Verbeek back in Campus. Uh, back in Detroit. So Campus Hattrick, do it. Do uh, note of my prediction here. I guess I will say three two Ducks on Sunday against Detroit. So I had lost to the Rangers, win against New Jersey, lost to Boston, mm-hmm. win against Detroit. So two and two. I got one and three. One and three. Okay, being a little bit more conservative after our two and zero. Oh but I guess stuff. I guess I guess it'll be more. Uh, it would be one one and two. Is what yeah. it would is what it would be with some overtime losses there, yeah. All right, well that's uh, Ducks game predictions presented by Seven One Four Tickets. And mentioning that as well, FM Three Stars is back. Uh, if you have heard of it before, it's our prediction game mm-hmm. before every game on Twitter. You predict the Ducks' first goal scorer, the final score of the game, and a random one. So for the first game, it was who gets the most hits on the Ducks. The second one was who gets the most shots. We switch it up for every game as many times as we can filter through different questions of predictions for the ducks a winner at the end of the month is the person who gets the most points so it's one point per correct prediction we'll tally them all up and the winner gets a pair of tickets and some pieces of ducks promo gear so a pair of tickets to a ducks game uh, courtesy of 714 tickets Uh, and then we also have some more prizes coming for that hopefully uh, throughout the season as things develop as well. And then we have a grand prize for the winner at the end of the year. So it pays to be there and make your predictions every game because even if you don't win the month, we tally up the points across the entire season and there's a grand prize at the end of the year um, that we're going to give out and we'll reveal that later because that's still evolving. So we've got a few of the pieces for the grand prize in place, but we're going to continue adding to that as the season goes. So make sure to follow us on Twitter at Forever Mighty FM. And tune in about 30 to 45 minutes for the game 
for FM three stars. I would say turn notifications on. But, yeah, a hundred percent. You should do that. You should definitely turn notifications <laughs> on for everybody. Yes, turn 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 notifications on at least on game days. Uh, As always, come say hi. We love you. Yeah. Come talk to us. We miss it. But uh, um, yeah, I think that's it. Do you have anything else you wanted to cover? We're we're somehow yeah, short I of mean, two hours for once. So. You know, I, I mean, I think more than anything, the thing I really wanted to ask you, Edward, is have you ever seen the movie SWAT with Colin Farrell? No. Well, this podcast is over. It's the best you, movie in the world. 90% of the time, you could ask me if I've seen a movie, and the answer is no. And then I was, if, I, if I say yes, I will never be able to repeat a line from the movie, even if I've seen it. Oh, I don't yeah. care about that part. I just, SWAT is such a, I mean, it's not a good movie, but I love it so much. It's so wonderful. Uh, Samuel Jackson, Michelle Rodriguez, uh, L.O. Cool J. There was this period, I didn't watch movies, and then I started watching movies, but now I'll just watch whatever comes out, so I'll watch everything that comes out now. Shut up. But I'm we not know all you watch back. now is Paw Patrol. It, that does fill up a lot of my, a lot of my and When you're not, uh, Paw Patrol, not, My Little Pony, yeah. I was going to say, when you're not trying to, uh, poison your daughter with Harley Quinn. Yeah, yeah, that did not uh, did not pan out well. HBO, I don't know what you're doing here, but uh, yeah, guys, did, come on, get it together. Yeah, get it together. Um, all right, so that yeah, I think that's it. Uh, we're hoping to, as we say this every show, yep. hoping to get Pat and Jay back at some point. Um, scheduling didn't work out for for Jay to make it. We were gonna try and do tomorrow, but then both Stephen and I weren't available for tomorrow. So unless Jay wanted to do the show solo, it was not going to be possible. <laughs> and then we have. Back-to-back Dex games Monday and Tuesday, so it didn't feel right to do it on Tuesday and miss two games. So we went live today uh, to get the show out, hoping that uh, Jay and Pat can join us for the next show. I know Jay's ready to go. uh, Pat Pat says he listens and hears us give him shit about coming on the show and not coming on the show every week. So hopefully Pat will be on uh, for the next one. We can get all four of us on together. Yeah, don't hold your breath. But thanks for coming out, guys. Season's off to a, a decent start, I will say. It's tough to say a great start after losing seven to one, but it's back. Hockey's back. That's the that's the big thing. So hockey's yeah. back. Tennessee is the number one number one ranked football club in the country. Uh, UCLA is inside the top ten, and I'm not happy about it because that's that's not a good thing. It's never historically been a good thing. I'm going to cry. Manchester United scraping at the top four. I'm just, I'm just glad we made it out of uh, Newcastle unharmed. God, bleak. Uh, yeah. So, um, I guess like uh, the only other things, real quick, would be uh, please, since we do have to do this now, we are trying to be better about this and remembering. And the sooner you guys do it, the sooner we can stop bothering you about it. Uh, if you haven't, please go write a review. Go rate the show uh, wherever you listen. Uh, if that's YouTube, if that's Spotify, iTunes, whatever it is, anywhere you hear us, give us a review, give us a shout out. We always, uh, we always really appreciate that. And I know it helps with getting us in front of other people, which, you know, we would like to have more people to bother than just the, uh, the ones of you that are already here. Uh, on top of that, uh, Forever Mighty FM is our Twitter account. Is it Forever Many FM? You or is use that it the... more than anybody, so you should. I know can't. That. Yeah, yes. but I'm, I never tweet at it. Yeah, I'm somebody somebody it. took at Forever Mighty a long time ago, so that we're at Forever Mighty FM on Twitter. Uh, as I said last time, it's usually me or Eddie. As Eddie just said, it's mostly me. 
but you know, hit us up. We you know try to have dumb questions or uh, little random things. We always love arguing or agreeing with you and arguing with other people. Uh, whatever it is, uh, we're always there. Eddie is at Eddie Van Jones on Twitter. I am at the Hockey Boomer. Uh, I also have a little Substack I try to do. You can go to my Twitter account to find it. Uh, I bother Eddie sometimes and make him help me with it. Uh, should have a season preview uh, for each division up pretty soon with a dumb little bit in it. And yeah, happy uh, start of the hockey season, everybody. As Eddie said, this is the first episode of the season, and we're really excited to be back. Should be a fun year. All right. Thanks for listening, everybody. See you later. Bye, everybody.